Hey there, I'm Olivia Allen Price, host of a podcast called Bay Curious that answers listener questions about the Bay Area. How did all of this eucalyptus get to the Bay Area? How long does it take for water to get from Hetch Hetchy to San Francisco? Want to know the answers? Subscribe to the Bay Curious podcast or visit baycurious.org. Hi, everybody. Liam here. Just a few quick notes before we start the show. First of all, the interview you're about to hear is my conversation with author and former longtime Oakland librarian Dorothy Lazard. It was recorded live in front of a wonderful audience on June 4th, 2023 at Clio's Bookstore. Thank you to Clio's for hosting this event. Uh, in case you're wondering, no, <laughs> Clio's still isn't open yet, but they will be soon, and I'm hoping to do more events there in the near future. You can find out about those events and other local history news in my free newsletter. The link to that, of course, is at eastbayyesterday.com. Also, just wanted to mention that uh, since I started writing a column for SF Gate a few months ago, I've picked up a bunch of new listeners. So uh, I just want to welcome you all. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, if you just discovered this podcast, guess what? I've been doing it for about seven years now, so there are tons of episodes in my back catalog. What do you want to know about? What are you curious about? Uh, Bruce Lee's time in Oakland? Grizzly bears? Soul food? Blues? Punk? Hyphy? Raves? I've covered it all. Just uh, dig through the archives wherever you get podcasts. And uh, one more thing, since this is an independent show, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help spread the word about East Bay yesterday. Tell your friends, tell your family, share it on social media, whatever you can do to uh, help me promote the show, I'd be incredibly grateful for. That's about it for now. Let's get on to the interview with my good friend, Dorothy Lazard. Thanks for joining us here today. If you look at almost any book that's been written about Oakland over the past decade or so, and there have been quite a few, um, you will see the name Dorothy Lazard in the acknowledgement section. Dorothy's influence on the way that people think about Oakland is vast. And I say that because whenever someone wanted to write about Oakland to really understand this place, they would go to the History Center at the library and Dorothy would be there not only to help find obscure books and files, but to give context, to share information that you won't find in old newspaper clippings. Dorothy moved to Oakland in the 1970s, so she doesn't just know the history, she lived it, and that makes her, in my opinion, the best kind of historian. Dorothy, you got the book smarts and the street smarts, as, as we learned in this book. Anyway, um, get, after getting thanked, by all those other authors and their books. Now, Dorothy, you've retired and you've finally had time to write your own book. And uh, here it is. I'm holding it up right now. What you don't know will make a whole new world. And uh, wow. I mean, I've known you for almost a decade now, Dorothy. And, uh, you know, I've picked up bits and pieces of your, you know, childhood and family stories through those conversations over the years. But, uh, and I knew you'd have a lot to say in this book, but it, it blew away my expectations. It's so personal and, and so powerful. Um, not only does the reader get to experience moving from St. Louis to San Francisco at the height of the hippie era 
through the eyes of a young black girl, but to witness the transformation of the Bay Area, San Francisco and Oakland through your eyes um, during that time was just incredible. And um, for anyone <laughs> that doesn't remember what it was like to be a confused, scared, wild, desperate teenager, you will remember after reading this book. <laughs> Because as a writer, Dorothy, you capture those tumultuous years so perfectly. The uh, the mix of wonder and awe and anxiety and frustration. Um, I mean, during some of these sections, you almost feel like you're sitting next to Dorothy on AC Transit, you know, staring out the window as Oakland is zooming by. Uh, you, you really bring your own history and the history of Oakland to life in this book. So um, I could go on, but uh, let's pause there and get into the question and answer section. But before that, can we give Dorothy one more round of applause real quick? <laughs> All right, Dorothy. So this book covers your childhood and teenage years, and it ends around the time that uh, you're transitioning out of high school into college. Um, and I know you've had an incredible life since then, so I'm just curious about why you wanted to focus your memoir exclusively on those first, you know, two decades, more or less, of your life. Well, thank you for all your kind words, first of all. Um, I wanted to focus on that because uh, when you look over your life, you get to a certain age, and I'm at that age, where I was wondering, well, how did I become who I became? Why am I like this now at this age? And, uh, and if you read the book, you'll be able to figure it out. The math is super easy. Um, <laughs> and I, it was very easy for me to spot the time that most marked me, and that was those first years in California. Now, as far as a project of writing a memoir goes, what I wanted to do was to kind of commemorate the fact that I've been here uh, to this place that I didn't ever expect to live for over 50 years. So in 2017, 2018, I started to write this book in commemoration of that time. And so it wasn't, I, I think what's happening as I'm doing more of these talks about the book is people think I retired and then I started writing the book. <laughs> I don't write that fast. I barely read that fast. So, um, no, I had been writing uh, pieces of this book for years. And so, little by little, I'd write a little more and I'd write a little more. And uh, by 2017, 2018, when I decided not to give myself a 50th anniversary party, but do something a little bit more substantial and long-lasting and commemorative, I started to look at all those essays, all those notes, all those memories as a book. And that's when I set to work on it. And um, one of the themes in this book is transition. You are constantly getting moved between family members, homes, schools, states, cities. Mm -hmm. And um, at the same time, like the whole world around you was changing so much. This is the late 60s, early 70s, and all these social transformations are occurring. And you were such a, you know, you were just a child during those years. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, you're talking about how this book is sort of a looking back at your at your past to figure out, you know, what forces shaped you. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how specifically all those transitions getting bounced around so much in the midst of this tumultuous world, how do you feel like that shaped the person you ultimately became? Well, it made home 
super important to me, and it made stability super important to me because I didn't really have stability uh, in my childhood. Uh, and I also felt an enormous amount of powerlessness, which I think is pretty typical of most kids. They're not empowered at all about where they go, where they live. Nobody's asking a child, where do you want to live? Or should we move to California? And so there was this huge sense, uh, my overriding sense of childhood was uh, vulnerability and powerlessness. But it wasn't like this kind of large societal powerlessness, which I would find later. Mm -hmm. It kind of came very early and in very intimate settings. Yeah, like, um, you know, speaking of that powerless, it's reminded me of a section in the book where you talk about how when you first started learning how to read and you first discovered libraries, you, you know, instantly were obsessed. This was such a incredible world to connect to. But your grandma didn't want you to have a library card. No, my grandmother was, um, that stands out for a lot of people I've noticed, yeah. um, uh, considering I became a librarian, I guess. My grandmother was more concerned about how is this going to affect our family financially? You know, are you going to lose something or tear something up and I'm going to have to pay for it? And I think she just didn't want me to be a greater burden than maybe she already thought I was. Hmm. And so, I mean, that's the way I interpret that. There may be another interpretation, but this is the only one I have. Um, so she was more concerned about that, which, you know, whenever anybody tells a kid, don't do something, what are they going to do? They're going to want to do it. <laughs> You're like, I'll um, show you, Grandma. I'm going to be a librarian for 40 years. <laughs> I'm be Nearly 40 years. Um, so, so yeah, I feel like we were at loggerheads and I, I knew how to read. So the, yeah. uh, by then I was 10 years old by then. Uh, but the people who really turned me on to reading were my father and an older half brother. I was just thinking about this the other day. Uh, I have a half brother, Sam, who, um, used to race me when I was really little. He'd say, I'd say the alphabet a to Z, and he'd say it Z to A to see who could in first. And so that This got is what me... kids did for fun before video games, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> batteries? What batteries? Don't, we don't need no stinking batteries. Yeah. And so, um, and then my father used to read the comics to me and taught me how to read a comic, you know, because kids wouldn't naturally know that there's a sequence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so, yeah, those were my two early reading influences. So by the time I got out here and discovered the library, I just wanted to keep reading. Yeah, definitely. So I don't want to kind of get into the entire early plot of your books. I feel like most people, I mean, apparently we've already, you've already sold out of your books here. So I guess most people here are pretty interested in reading the book for themselves. And I hope so. I know the book has been getting a lot of attention, but I'm wondering if you could just like, sorry, what's that? About 10 copies left, so there you go. They're going, they're going fast. Um, and, you know, because this is East Bay yesterday, I do want to focus more on your Oakland years. Definitely. But do you want to summarize sort of like just the beginning plot of how your family, you know, how you were moved from San Francisco to, or from St. Louis to San Francisco, and then we can pick things back up once you get to Oakland? Um, summarize it? Okay, let's see if I'm not really good at summarizing. Um, let's see. Uh, we, my brother and I, my brother Albert, who's um, five and a half years older than me, um, 
were placed in care, as they called it. Uh, we were in an orphanage, St. Vincent's Day Home, which still exists. in Saint, in, Well, not in St. Louis, but in Florissant, uh, which is between a uh, small town between St. Louis and Ferguson, Missouri. And uh, it was a pre predominantly white orphanage. And we were placed in care because our mother was very ill and our father was to be kind, ancient. And um, there was an incident with an old man's comb in my hair, and my father couldn't get his comb extricated from my hair. And um, I'll let you find out what happened next. Anyway, skimming, skimming. Um, <laughs> and uh, we were placed in care where we stayed for uh, over a year. And uh, one day I was called to the lobby of this uh, institution and told that my grandmother had come to retrieve us, to bring us back into the family fold. But the tricky part is we were never in her family fold. We lived uh, as a nuclear family in St. Louis. And my mother's mother, uh, this grandmother I'm referring to, lived here in California. And she had come to take my mother and my brother and myself to California. That's how we got here. All that's in the book. And so uh, do you want me to talk about how we got to Oakland, East Bay, yesterday? Well, so you live in San Francisco. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Yeah. Let's so get you, to the good so you, part. Live in, you, you live in San Francisco for a couple of years. Boring. Then you come to Oakland. That's when the real excitement begins. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I leave. I, I leave segregated St. Louis yeah. and land in 1968 in the Haight-Ashbury. Yeah. Boring. Yeah. Not boring. really. <laughs> boring. Not boring. Uh, anything but boring. It was. Um, it's every yeah. hyperbole that you could think of and mm -hmm. a lot more. It is. It was magical and mind-blowing and um, sweet and sad. And, um, and that's where the marking started, the, the marking that made me a Californian. That's where it started in, in Haight-Ashbury, before it was called Coal Valley, before it got fancy. Uh, because there were kids of every imaginable race. Well, I couldn't imagine it because I was used to, you know, all black world, uh, uh, some white world in the orphanage. And um, I actually was the first black girl in that orphanage, by the way. Um, and so I was kind of astounded. It was like, what's a Filipino? What's a pineapple? You know, you know, there was a lot of stuff I didn't know. Um, and so I, I just loved it. I love the, yeah. the kids. I love the fact that we could be outside. I was kind of freaked out about there not being any snow. It's like, wait, it's Christmas. Why are we in T-shirts? So, um, so, yeah. But, you know, the hippies, there's a fair amount in the book about the hippies because I was absolutely astounded by the hippies it's just like why would you choose to be dirty <laughs> you know when you're like eight you're wondering you know all the white people on tv are like clean why are you what 
So there was that. Um, it was just uh, it was just a time of wonder, and I, I tried to capture that in the book. And you and you certainly do, and you also capture Oakland really vividly as well. So you're living in the middle of San Francisco, and then you were what in uh, like sixth, seventh grade when you first moved to Oakland. Was that it? No, I was in. Um, I was starting sixth grade. Sixth grade at Highland okay. School. So tell me about your. What, tell me about where in Oakland you first moved to, and what your impressions were of our coming here for the first time. Oakland, our first house in Oakland was on Bird Street, uh, across street from Elmhurst Junior High School, where I met my husband. Hi, Gerald. Uh, so. Um, um, yeah, we lived on Bird Street off of 98th Avenue in this um, nice, big, sunny house with a huge orchard in the backyard. And um, Oakland was just wide open spaces and a lot of kids and a lot of fun, you know, play in the streets, stay out until it's dark, until somebody's mom's like, get back in this house. It was a lot of fun. Whereas San Francisco was a much different childhood experience. You know, all the houses were kind of pressed together. You know, sometimes you'd be on punishment and couldn't go outside. But all you have to do is open up your dining room window <laughs> and your friend open up her dining room window and just play. It's like I wasn't going to stand this close to her out in the street. So this <laughs> this works for me. So there was that. Yeah. Well, you're talking about sort of being a kid roaming, roaming freely through the streets of Oakland. Um, but there was a, a certain line you couldn't cross. And uh, you, you talk about this in the book, how you would go for walks with your mom. And sometimes when you would get to the border of San Leandro, there was an unpleasant figure waiting for you there, um, which is kind of ironic because at the time, this is Oakland is the you know cultural center of the black power movement in the 60s and 70s. But right there on the border of San Leandro, uh, that's where the, the movement kind of came to a halt. Can you tell me about that experience? Halt. Uh, sure. Uh, at the time when I was growing up, this is when we lived in East Oakland. So we're talking early 70s, you know, like 70 to 73. And um, my my job in my family was to take my mom for walks every day. And so we would walk down East 14th Street, now known as International Boulevard, but I never call it that. Um, we would walk down East 14th Street to 107th, 108th, near the Durant uh, Motor Company. I don't know what it's called now. It's probably condos. Um, and uh, there was a, a police station there to turn people around from Oakland. Because it was San Francisco, uh, San Francisco, sorry. San Leandro was very, um, I won't say... Yeah, I will say that. It was very hostile to African Americans at the time. It was basically still segregated, right? Proudly so. Yeah, proudly. Proudly yeah. so. Uh, there was a documentary that you can now see online about um, how San Leandro was not going to open up its housing to, and this came out in like 70, 71. The nation's cities are becoming blacker. The suburbs remain white. Despite more than a decade of civil rights activity, despite the 1964 Civil Rights Act, despite the 1968 Fair Housing Act, the suburbs remain a last barrier for most blacks. Who shapes the character of a community? The homeowner or the realtor? Industry and business? 
local or federal government. This report examined one suburb in the San Francisco Bay Area, but it could have been just about any suburb in the country. San Leandro is a middle-income bedroom suburb. The 1960 census showed it was 99.99% white. The 1970 census showed the same thing. And, um, you know, they had every imaginable cockeyed justification for it. You know, they talked to a bunch of realtors and stuff like that. Anyway, so it had that reputation of being a kind of a hostile environment for African-Americans. So they wanted to, you know, create this one-man blockade, and they did, and we'd stand there and stare at him, and he'd stare at us, waiting for us, I guess, to cross that threshold. Um, I don't know. It was, uh, and also, I, I guess now would be a good time to say, during those years, people were, a lot of African Americans were moving deeper into East Oakland, and a lot of white people were moving out of East Oakland. And I'm talking about deep East Oakland, you know, 85th, 98th, that kind of thing. And we still, I think, were able to see white flight in action. It wasn't, you know, just some story in the paper, but you're seeing people literally packing up and moving when, you know, a black family would move into their neighborhood. Now, we have a completely different view of East Oakland now, but it wasn't always this solidly minority or predominantly minority space. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people were moving to places like uh, Castro Valley and Hayward and and Walnut Creek and and just leaving Oakland. And a lot of that was, you mentioned the Black Panthers, a lot of that was uh, fear of a black universe, I guess, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I, I think it's just such a stunning example of how late that history of segregation went. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't something that only happened in the South or something that ended in the 50s. Correct. You're talking about 1970s, Oakland-San Leandro border, and there's a police officer on the border, like, physically enforcing, basically. Whose job it was to turn people yeah, around. Yeah, almost like an apartheid system where it's like, no, you have to stay on that side. Yeah. of the border or face the consequences. Um, now, there were certainly kids who went to things in San Leandro and things in Hayward, but I do remember also <clears throat> kids coming back from Hayward Plunge saying, oh, we were chased out of the pool, so we had to come back home, that kind of thing. So um, I think these days we think that that is somewhere, that was somewhere else at a different time, but... Um, mm. You know, those kinds of things were happening in our lifetime. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit earlier about, a little bit earlier about how you were pretty obsessed with books and libraries from a young age, which honestly didn't surprise me very much. I mean, oh, I would also was the same way, yeah, completely yeah. like spent my childhood reading in libraries. Uh-huh. But I was a little bit surprised about how early on you got into history. You were your class historian in high school which I don't even know if most high schools had a class historian. I didn't, I wasn't. What kind of high school did you go to not to have a historian? So how did you get that position? Because nobody else wanted it. <laughs> uh, at the time, I went to Castlemont High School. Is anybody from Castlemont? No. See there? Jeez. Anyway, um, and... Um, I was a junior class historian, too, by the way. 
Oh, I didn't specify which year you were. I just said you were the class historian. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> um, and, and at that time, all the historian did was like save all the newspapers that came okay. out for that year. Pictures that may have been taken at like the senior picnic or something like that. Flyers, you make flyers, but then they were kind of like hand-drawn because mm -hmm. it was the 70s, right? And we didn't have computers. And, um, and that, was my, that was my job. What attracted you to that? And was that your first time thinking about history in that way, like archiving and realizing the importance of preservation and things like that? No, I had a father who was born in the 19th century. That's what made me think of <laughs> That's what made me think of uh, history because I was always surrounded by older people and and their old things. Huh. Yeah, yeah. 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 So when you started doing this archiving work for your high school, were you thinking, like, this could be something I'm interested in doing for the no. long haul? No, not at all. No. It was just something I was doing because I didn't want to run for anything else. It's like <laughs> <laughs> the undisputed class historian. I can handle that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, um, you know, there's been a lot... There's been a lot written in sort of academic history books about uh, the quote-unquote urban renewal of mm -hmm. West Oakland mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s, uh, which, you know, demolished dozens of blocks of predominantly black neighborhoods to make room for highways, BART, post office, public housing developments, etc. Um, but most of those histories, um, at least a lot of the ones I've read, were not written by people that actually lived through that. But you did. You write about it up close and personal, what it was like to live through that era when you moved eventually from East Oakland to West Oakland with your sister. And, um, you know, you actually describe it so beautifully or so kind of vividly mm -hmm. in the book. I'm wondering if you could read a little section here starting on 158, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what it was like to actually live through that era and now document it. Okay. So uh, just to give you context... Everybody can hear me, right? Uh, just to give you context, my sister and I have moved to from East Oakland to West Oakland, and we live on um, in the relatively new Oak Village Apartments, which was this two-building apartment complex bordering 13th and 14th Street, Brush and Market. And this is what we came to. West Oakland didn't hold a charm for me of East Oakland's densely residential districts, mainly because it didn't feel like a neighborhood. I was used to living in houses, having land around me, a grassy backyard, a front porch to sit in, or at least a stoop. Where Sarah and I landed on the border of downtown felt very much like a construction zone, a work in progress. We seemed to live in a netherworld there in the Oak Village apartments, neither downtown nor fully in the West Oakland that our Aunt Ruby lived in on West Street or in the age-worn section on Campbell where Uncle Shirley once lived. Our new neighborhood was being redeveloped when we arrived. On the opposite side of our apartment complex, an army of construction workers moved and demolished old Victorian homes to clear space for a new freeway that would connect the Nimitz Freeway to the MacArthur Freeway. <coughs> The miles-long scar in the landscape stretched as far north as the eye could see. Churches were moved from one side of the construction site to the other to avoid demolition. I watched as houses on the 700 of block of 14th Street and its adjacent streets disappeared. 
and as our street, 13th Street, was cut off and turned in a, into an inconsequential spur. Some of the doomed old houses bore enticing signs that read, for sale, $1, plus the cost to move the house to the land the buyer owned. Soon after, some afternoons, I watched as these houses were lifted carefully onto trucks and slowly carted away to parts unknown, a different kind of migration. Sarah and I joked that we could afford the house, but that was about it. Like us, our neighborhood was in transition. There was a lot of promises being made to the people of West Oakland then. Everything was coming. Supermarkets were coming. Jobs were coming. Newer, affordable, modern housing was coming. Oak Center, as our section of West Oakland was called, was pocked with large vacant lots waiting to be filled in the name of progress and urban renewal. Across from our apartment, a large billboard on the northeast corner of 14th and Market boasted new houses coming, but several years would pass before any houses appeared on the lot. There were no modern supermarkets nearby. We often bought milk, sugar, cans of soup, boxes of grits and oatmeal from liquor stores. Sometimes we shopped at Housewives Market on 9th Street or Swan's Market on 10th Street. Both markets had been serving West Oaklanders for generations, but by the 1970s, neither offered the products or the appeal of mainstream stores like Safeway or Lucky's. Housewives was seriously old school, a prime source of meats that your grand southern-born grandmother might buy, like hog mogs or oxtails or a bucket of chitlins. At Swan's, independent vendors sold a variety of items from stalls. You could buy an Easter dress, a shoe shine, a bag of candies, black-eyed peas, or a log of hogshead cheese there. It always seemed crowded, but it would serve in a pinch. When we moved to the neighborhood, I noticed right away that there were no nearby drugstores where you could buy toiletries or over-the-counter medicines or linger reading magazines. I miss my weekly dose of jet. The block clearing would continue and the hopeful billboards would fade and the targeted lots would remain empty into the next decade. A few blocks away, downtown was also undergoing a transition. The downtown of a generation ago, from 8th to 14th streets, was being gutted to make way for a new multi-block city center complete with high-rise office buildings, banks, and retail stores. This major construction project lured me farther downtown, where old department stores and mom-and-pop shops on Washington, Clay, 11th, 12th, and 13th Streets, popular 20 or 30 years before, once stood. Large sheets of plywood bordered the cavernous development site, and circular holes were carved into these barriers so people could see the progress but the progress was glacial. Weeks and months would go by and nothing noticeable would be erected. No rebar, no poured foundations, and still more and more buildings came down in the name of progress. An old world, signs assured us, was giving way to a new one. There's obviously a lot to unpack there, um, but I want to start with kind of a broad question. 
which is um, when you were a teenager living through this era of, you know, quote unquote, urban renewal, how aware were you or were you aware at all of the kind of racial component of what was happening with this uh, transformation of this landscape? Sure, because around the time that they were redeveloping downtown, for example, just to use downtown as an example, there was also, you know, simultaneous talks about who will be hired to build these new businesses, offices, um, you know, the city center itself. So the whole process of hiring minority workers, hiring minority construction workers was very front of mind at the time. And, you know, you, you can't help look at it in socioeconomic terms uh, without looking at what was happening to West Oakland and people being moved either further into Oakland or completely out of Oakland. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, yeah, that was very clear that it had some racial components. Yeah. And you still held on to your connection to East Oakland, though, right? Because you d you wanted to go to school, high school at Castlemont, so you could still be connected with your childhood friends. So you were trans you were crossing, crossing town, every, town day. every single day on yeah. the bus. What was that like to just like really fully take in the entire landscape of Oakland? So yeah, many you're times? crossing the entire length of the city, just yeah. about. Um, I, I liked it. I liked. Um, just being, you know, on my own for hours at a time. Um, and I went, I chose to go to school uh, in East Oakland because I just didn't want to meet any new kids. <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I was kind of grumpy about it. Well, you'd and already my, moved so many times. I'd moved so many then. times, yeah. and I had made it all the way through junior high with, without transferring to another school. And I wanted to make it through uh, high school even mm. though I didn't live anywhere near my high school. Yeah. And what did you call the bus back then? Aunt Clara. The Aunt Clara. Yeah, AC <laughs> Transit, Aunt Clara. Um, yeah, I still call it that a little bit. And you still ride the bus. I still do. <laughs> um, so the book ends around the time that you're starting college, but I was wondering if I could ask you about a few things that happen in the years after the book ends so we can go beyond the scope of the book a little bit here. Okay. All right. I so, became a librarian. Well, you before that, before that, you had some pretty interesting jobs. Like, didn't you have a job at UC Berkeley at a time when cults were a big problem there? Oh, did I tell you that story? You did tell Is me that, that story. You're asking I'm bringing me? it up. I should have warned you that I was going to ask this, Christ. but I just the story stuck in my head because it's a pretty interesting position. Um, what do you want to know about cults? Um, well, I think everyone's curious now. Well, um... <laughs> After I got out of college, yeah, um, I went to UC Berkeley for library school. I can't believe you asked me this question. <laughs> um, so I worked at UC Berkeley for 17 years before starting my career at the at the public library. And uh, when I, the year that I spent on the Berkeley campus, uh, that was during a time early 80s, 81, 82, 83, um, there were a lot of cults on campus, and uh, the people who were recruiting cult members, I guess, seems a weird thing to have to recruit, but um, there well, were a lot of people 
on the bus, on campus, in the cafeteria line, kind of sidling up to you asking, do you want to come to this picnic this Saturday? And then you'd never hear from the person again. <laughs> um, but it was so, um, what would I say? Their presence was so prevalent on campus that Berkeley at the time had a cult awareness office. I have no idea what, where we're going with well, this. Well, wasn't your job to like help like, like parents who called the university that were like, I think my you know son or daughter joined a cult. Weren't you? What, didn't you have some no, kind of I, position where you were like trying to like help rescue people from cults or no, something no, like no, that? No, 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 darling. Um, <laughs> no, no. I was wondering. It's like where is he going with this? I was trying this? to remember. I remember you told me the story years ago, and for some reason, when I was writing these questions, it just popped in my head. I'm like, ask her about cults. Ask her about cults. <laughs> um, no, uh, I was. Um, in the division that uh, helped dealt with cults, I was in that undergraduate division of student activities and services, but I wasn't the cult whisperer or anything like that. No, it wasn't me. Um, I don't know what to say. I don't know. I feel like <laughs> your lack of forthcomingness about these questions makes me worried that the cults might have got to you, Dorothy. I'll be. I feel like you're covering. I feel like you're covering something up here. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I am, but okay, I could have okay. been. You know, all right. They could have gotten to me. We can move on for now. All Please. right. So, Please. of course, you know, most people know you, or a lot of people know you, through your years at the Oakland History Center. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some any highlights, because you were like just immersed in that world for so long. You did so much to catalog Oakland history. You know, help people learn Oakland history. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you know, thinking back. Uh, if there's any like parts of the job or like discoveries you made um, that you know were just some some happy memories that you can share with uh, with us, some good Oakland history stories. I have some. I have so many stories about Oakland history. Uh, just working in that room and dealing with like old photos. What I've been focused on lately is the amount of stuff that people would. Well, what I perceived as important things that people would just, you know, hand us, here, take this. Um, you know, and my thing was always, don't you want it? I mean, doesn't somebody in your family want it? Uh, so we got all kinds of gifts. As a matter of fact, the Oakland History Center right now has a, that's on the second floor of the main library. Uh, they now have a display, an exhibit on uh, their recent gifts, which I think is a fantastic idea to share with the, community, uh, the things that, the types of things that they receive. So um, I've been thinking about that lately, you know, like someone came, had driven from Arizona to deliver to us a, um, I guess it would be called a lithograph uh, framed that he picked up at a uh, swap meet in Page, Arizona. And he had driven it all the way up to Oakland because it was done by someone who was a Disney animator, but who had gone to Oakland High in the 20s. Wow. Huh. Just the most random stuff comes to, came to us and still comes to the History Center librarians. And who I, are here just, today, by the way. Who are here today, Aaron and, and Emily. Emily. Yay. Thank you for all your work you do.
And so um, I don't tell too many people this story, but I remember being at the desk at the History Center and uh, one of my favorite patrons, Proverb Jacobs, who used to be an NFL football player, uh, he spent a lot of time researching his uh, history in the Oakland History Room. He grew up in West Oakland, became a very beloved um, athletic coach at Laney College. But before that, he was in the NFL. And one day I look, I, you know, I see the shadowy figure over me. And it's Proverb, and he's kind of wrenching his Super Bowl ring off his fingers. It's like, do you want this? And I was like, no, don't you want it? What are you doing? And uh, He was going to donate his Super Bowl ring to the history room? Yeah. And you didn't want it? No, because I wanted him and his family to want it. Okay. Right. So, um, so, yeah, those kinds of things are kind of amazing. And then I kind of like all the obscure stuff that we got that we didn't know where it came from, but you get to play a kind of game of detective. It's like, where is that building in Oakland? Or when is this? When was this picture taken? So, you know, how can we age it by yeah. the photo, the cars in the, by the cars in the, um, in the image or something like that? And that was always fun for me. Um, the gifts and then the people who come to do research, you know, the like the Hells Angels conference <laughs> or something. <laughs> Did you know that there's like a, a section of Evergreen Cemetery that's just full of Hells Angels? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Okay, I just want you to know that. Oh, <laughs> uh, I didn't know there's that. A lo- there's a, a lot of interesting sections to that cemetery. The uh, Jonestown. Really, yes. There's Jonestown, um, the, the people who were lost in Jonestown. Mm. Because uh, speak- San Francisco wouldn't allow them to be buried in San Francisco. That's why they ended up in Oakland, is my understanding. Well, of San the Francisco story. doesn't have doesn't any have cemeteries, so you got to go yeah. all the way to Colma. Colma although right. those are con- still considered. We're starting to get nerdy okay, here. Yeah. Stop it. Well, okay. I want to ask you about another highlight. For, oh, were, you, were you about to say something else from your, your memories? Or? Um, I was going to say um, oh, I end this book in 77, but uh, locally, mm-hmm. 78 was our year of you know major events and trauma Mm. um well i'm going to change the topic to a little bit of a happier subject then we're swinging somewhere else okay (laughs) um well just getting back to your highlights of your career in the history room one of my favorite moments was the very end the very last pickle barrel it was the uh, not the pickle barrel what pickle barrel? Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is this, is this a cult yeah, called is, pickle barrel? Is this, is this no, a, no, is no. This a cold, cold word? No, no, no. What I was thinking of is one of my favorite reference questions, which a few people in this room have heard me talk about before, is uh, how many... This is the kind of thing I was asked for like 12 years. <laughs> Uh, how many barrels of pickle could a person own in 1870? <laughs> and that was like my third pickle question of the day that it came in. It's like, what is happening with the pickles? Did you ever find out why people were so interested in pickle history? I didn't really know. Yeah. I didn't really find out, but it had something to do with a cult. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, what I was going to say is... Um, 
I loved your your retirement party, your going away party. Wasn't and it the best? It was a it great was party. And um, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit here in front of your husband even because my favorite part of that party was when we played uh, Dorothy-themed Jeopardy. Jeopardy. I, think that, I think that should happen every year on my birthday. I, I would do that. I would, be, I would be help out and be one of the writers. But I'm going to do a little audience participation here. One of the questions was, uh, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, what historical figure did Dorothy have a crush on? That was basically the question, right? Am I getting that more or less right? Does anyone want to guess? Anyone want to guess which historical figure Dorothy? Can we get a century? Well, I think we have. We, I think we have a guess right here in the front row. The uh, person was off mic, <laughs> so you couldn't hear it. But they guessed Delilah Beasley. And eh, nope. But uh, if you do want to hear more about Delilah Beasley who was an incredible trailblazing black journalist and historian, check out episode 60 of this podcast. I did a whole show all about her. Uh, no, okay, the, it was, it would be uh, 18th century, right? No. Or I guess 19th century, 1800s. Yeah, eight, 1900s. That was, so. that was one of the questions at the party? Um, you don't gotten, remember this? We've gotten so far okay. off the point. He uh, is famous for writing a uh, autobiography, among many other accomplishments, in the in the 1800s. And he had a great head of hair. Great head, of, yes, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass. <laughs> I feel like at your party, everyone instantly was like, "We all know." <laughs> yeah, it was bad. It was bad. Everyone. It was bad. We could read you like a book. Um, speaking of books, I know that this hopefully is not going to be your last book. Is there anything you can say about forthcoming uh, volumes or projects that you're working on right now that the readers can look forward to in the coming years? Well, this book is just an incredible act of serendipity because I was called into Heyday's offices to, offices to meet Steve Wasserman to talk about possibly my writing a book on the history of African-Americans in Oakland. Um, and we talked for a while. And then at the end, you know, after we talked about, you know, how this book would look and how I would formulate it and all of that, I thought, this guy doesn't know me from a can of paint. He doesn't know if I can write or not. So I asked him for um, to indulge me for a few more minutes. Our meeting was about to end. And, um, and you know, I was wondering, what am I committing myself to, you know? I mean, Heyday was not unfamiliar to me. I typically, as a librarian, would go through their catalog and pretty much buy everything for the library, for the history room. And um, so I read him the first two pages of this, wow. and he was like, oh, do you have a publisher for that? And I was like, no, I don't. I haven't even finished it. At that time, I was about 130 pages in. And um, he said, I'd like to read some of that. And he asked for 50 pages. And then he was like, send me the whole thing. And some months later, I did. Mm -hmm. And um, as my neighbors, uh, my neighbor Sybil would say, and here's the book. <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. That's how Sybil uh, charts time. <laughs> So then, now that you're finished with this book, are you going to get back to work on the history of African Americans in Oakland project? I'm about 50 pages into a book proposal. Okay. But I'm working more uh, steadily and committedly on another book. 
Dorothy Lazard cult buster. Yeah, I like it. It's going to be a graphic novel. That's why you didn't want to tell me anything. You're all keeping it for the next book, uh, right? I'm going to be clad in khaki on the cover. Stop it. Um, um, No, it's a book about the library. Okay. I think... There's a lot of interest, as it's you can hear. It's a lot of interest, uh, and it's a, it's a book about the library as a cultural institution. Amazing. And, a, and our most uh, truly democratic institution, as a matter of fact. Absolutely. So, you know, because we don't, what institution do we have in this country that you, you could be anybody uh, with any level of literacy or fame or money or nationality you don't even have to be a citizen that you can go into our public libraries you know and make use of them and uh, just talking about what that was like for the 20 years that I worked in um, public libraries uh, how it changed over those years because it because it changed a lot and just kind of celebrate you know the people who work in those libraries Um, but also Oakland has this really profoundly deep and profoundly interesting range of intellectual interests. And I'm not just talking about the people who are doing homework assignments or in grad school or, or educated. I'm just talking about everybody. I got to see everybody show me some part of themselves that was amazing, you know? Damn. Well, I hope you do the audiobook version too, because just hearing about it right now is giving me chills. I can't wait chills, for this next chills. book. So um, important. Yeah, so I wanted to say something about it. I mean, after all, they gave me like Dorothy Jeopardy. I have to pay it back in some way. <laughs> That's right. So, um, yeah, there's a lot to say. And, and, you know, 2022 was the year that there were more book bannings than any other time that they've been keeping records for that. So that's something, there's got to be some discussions about that. Can we uh, take a couple questions from the audience? Sure. You mind doing that? All right. So uh, we're recording this. So if you do have a question, please come to the front. We can start a line or people can just raise their hands and I'll call you up. But just want to make sure that the questions are on mic so we can uh, include it in the episode. Does anyone have a question for... Dorothy, to say your name and what cult you belong to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so, Dorothy, I was wondering if you could unpack the title of the book a little bit for us. I know that uh, I think it comes from something your grandmother used to say to you. Yeah. But the way it's written, it sounds like an admonition almost. And the way you've sort of internalized it and brought it forward, it, it almost sounds like a manifesto. So, um, you know, the title is What You Don't Know Will Make a Whole New World. Well, that's true. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could just unpack that for us. Uh, this was something that my grandmother said to me often when she felt like I was getting too big for my britches. But she also said, you know, if you get too smart, boys won't like you. Um, so, I mean, how much was I going to believe her? Um, <laughs> So, yeah, this is something, as a matter of fact, I've been told recently that it's something that a number of people's grandmothers said to them or they heard in their lifetime. So it's something that comes culturally 
in probably many families. But it also kind of harkens to my profession of being a librarian. And um, it came from that, but it, ha- it resonates with me, that title. Um, are there any other questions? Anybody need to know my zodiac sign or anything like that? Um, I'm Supriya, local journalist. Just wanted to know your zodiac sign. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's cancer. No. Um, I'm a water sign too. Oh, okay. But um, <laughs> the real question I had was <laughs> about this interest in history. Um, I think we're seeing at the paper and also with Liam's podcast, people have this really intense energy for wanting to know about history, about this place now. But yeah, just seeing that there's a lot of interest in history and history of this space in particular, from people who move in here, from people who've grown up here, I'm wondering if you, in your time in the history room, if you've seen something that kind of gets a spark going, is it when people find something that connects to them, or is it people usually coming in with a certain kind of question, like, there's so much history around us, it can be kind of overwhelming. Is there something that you feel like pins that down for people or helps them enter that journey for themselves? Um, Well, I'll tell you a couple of things that fascinate people when they find out. Uh, One of those things is that West Oakland wasn't always a black space. They are kind of gobsmacked by that. Um, The other thing is that not every black person was a member of the Black Panthers. (laughs) Uh, Seriously. Um, or, or even a uh, supporter of the Black Panthers. Other things that intrigue people is, um, you know, sports and food and restaurants and, and schools and, and natural disasters. And there was never like one dominant question which is what I loved about it. I mean, the questions were as diverse as our city is diverse. And that's what made the job fun. I think one of the first things that I worked on with Liam was, I think you were, were you just starting this podcast and you were doing something on Ina Coolbrith? Oh yeah, that was the first episode. Yeah. Yeah, Oakland's first librarian. Oakland's first librarian, who was also California's first poet laureate, you know, who got in trouble for teaching Jack, she didn't teach Jack London to read, he could read by the time he walked into the, the Oakland Library, but she got in trouble for handing him books that were considered too adult for, you know, an eight-year-old, you know, but he could read them, and he wanted to, and she put them in his hands, so... Just adding on to um, Supriya's question, a lot of people come in asking about like the history of their home, right, or the history of their neighborhood. Oh, sure. Are you able That's to, were you able to popular... help people usually with those kinds of questions? We could if their house was old enough, yeah. because we only had a certain number of books that could answer those questions. So if the house was old enough and we had books that would show, you know, like my house is, I don't know, like a dozen years uh, Pat, younger than the books we had, so I couldn't really dig around in earlier owners or something like that. But that was a really po- that's true. That was a really popular question. Um, I want to give a party for my house. It's turning a hundred. Can you tell me all about it? That kind of thing, yeah. which got a little bit obnoxious. Um, <laughs> 
and um, you know, because people would get competitive, you know, like my neighbor found out about her house, why can't I find out about mine? You know, people, what are you gonna do with them? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that was that's always been a really interesting question. But you know, there were times too where we would be faced with something that seemed impossible, but then we'd find it, and it, just the joy of discovering that for somebody was amazing. Like some woman who had graduated from sixth grade in like 1961, I want to say, uh, wanted to find her teacher, like where her teacher lived so she could write her teacher a letter. And it was like, maybe she's dead? I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's what I was Always thinking. Always keeping it real, Dorothy. That was my inside voice. I used my inside voice. And, uh, and um, but we found her teacher. She lived in the same house. Wow. And wow. the woman came back like a year later to say, oh, I just want, I'm back in town and I just wanted to tell you, I found my teacher and we had lunch and, and I, it almost made me cry. Amazing. And we've made a lot of people cry <laughs> also in the history room because they've, you know, found some relative that they thought they'd never find. And um, this retired Japanese journalist had come to find his grandfather who was a, who worked at a restaurant in San Francisco, but lived in Oakland in 1902. And then we found not only his grandfather, but what happened to him when he left Oakland, he opened a grocery store in LA and then the boat that his grandmother came over on from Japan to Hawaii to San Francisco. It was amazing. He was sobbing. It was it was a very emotional. I mean, it, it, there's so many different kinds of information that people can access to the history room. And again, it's so surprising what you can find. And I'll just give an example that happened to me the other day in the post Dorothy years at the History Center. <clears throat> the um, PD. <laughs> yeah, PD. <laughs> Um, I was working on research for, so my next article for SFGate is about um, a little p kind of forgotten part of Oakland called Radio Beach. Some people know it as Toll Plaza Beach. Mm -hmm. It's basically, every, and everyone knows where the Toll Plaza on the Bay Bridge is. Just north of that Toll Plaza, there's a little stretch of land that's not very accessible, but if you get out there, there's some lots of interesting birds, people go fishing. It's a, it's a cool little area. And um, I went to the history room to look through the old newspaper files and Emily was there and uh, at first I was looking through the beach files and there was nothing about it such an obscure beach and then I remember that um, people used to do like duck hunting and fishing out there people still do fishing but people used to do duck hunting back in the day there used to be these little duck shacks and uh, so I looked in the sport sports hunting and fishing folders nothing there so I was like all right ready to give up Maybe there's nothing about Radio Beach in the, in the clippings files. And then Emily went and looked up San Francisco Bay, comma, infill projects. And because Radio Beach is um, it's artificial land, it was basically made through um, sediments, dredged sediments from the Oakland Estuary being dumped north of the toll plaza, it created this beach. Sure enough, in that folder, there was maps, articles, all kinds of history. And it was like crucial for my understanding of that piece of history. And I wouldn't have found Go it on my Emily. own. So, you know, shout out to the history room. And hopefully that article is coming out this week. So look for it in SF Gate.
you said that you briefly uh, worked as a teacher, and I was wondering if you could talk more about that and how you think it's best to inspire young people to care about history, their own as well as Oakland's. How do you spark that in young people today? What were you saying about PTSD earlier, Liam? No, no, I'm joking. Um, I worked uh, for four or five years at Maybeck High School in Berkeley. Uh, I taught literature, um, intermediate and advanced composition. So I was mostly working to create people who could communicate through writing. Uh, but history is taught so poorly in America. You know, we are so focused on what's new, what's young, what's hip, what's now, that we don't, and we don't treat our elderly well. So that kind of exacerbates that, you know. Um, there's, a, there's a piece in here where I talk about history being taught to me in fourth grade and what I noticed even then about how history is taught. Um, we seem to be afraid to tell the whole story of history or even to know the whole story. I unfortunately had a lot of experience with uh, Oakland's charter school teachers who wanted to know, well, how much of this do I have to know to assign it? I mean, ew, you know, and, um, and so you're battling against this aversion to knowing anything that happened before we were walking the earth, which is just foolhardy, you know, because without knowing what happened before us, we don't really have a real understanding of who the heck we are and how we got to where we are and how we can get out of where we are, you know. I don't know, it's one of the sadnesses of my life that history is taught so poorly and so reluctantly. And it's like, do I, do I have to? Dana, getting back to your question, I'll just add one more thing so we can end on a little bit of a happier note here. Uh, I've found there that... There is an Easter bunny. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've In found that... Uh, you know, if the person teaching the history is excited about the topic, it's really contagious. And so, you know, getting good teachers, getting local teachers, getting people who want to talk about these topics and don't feel like they're being forced to. Uh, I think if you find people that, yeah, really can bring history to life, then, you know, everyone loves a good story. And yeah. history is basically all about stories. So, um, you know, basically, I'm just telling you to uh, get your kids to listen to East Bay yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Give it up for Dorothy, everyone, please. Dorothy Lazar. Thank you so much for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. Extra special thanks to Cleo's Bookstore for hosting my conversation with Dorothy. Cleo's isn't open yet, but uh, stay tuned. They will be soon, and you're going to want to check it out. Hopefully I'll be doing more events there. Again, you can find out info about those at my newsletter, eastbayyesterday.com. You can also find out links to my social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc., and um, if you uh, really like the show, while you're signing up for the newsletter and hitting all those social links, uh, also hit that Patreon link. Uh, there's a donate button. It helps so much. I really, really couldn't do the show 
without my Patreon supporters. If you are already supporting the show, thank you so much. I'm incredibly grateful for your generous support. Uh, another person I'm grateful to is uh, Justin Lee, my friend who did the music that you heard in this episode. Okay, that's about it. Thanks again for listening. As always, I'll be back soon with more East Bay Yesterday.